0: Morning. morning. Congregation has titled this talk "That's Not Fair." The basis of our discussion this morning is going to be in Luke the fifteenth chapter. So we'll we'll start out by turning there and just we're going to read the whole chapter. So if you if you turn your Bibles, we'll be there for a while. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke a parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness, and goes after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost." I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country, And there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. And when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, yet no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and here I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him they began to be merry. Now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, "'Lo, these many years I have been serving you. "'I never transgressed your command at any time, "'and yet you never gave me a young goat "'that I might make merry with my friends. "'But as soon as this son of yours came, who's devoured your livelihood with harlots, "'you killed the fatted calf for him.' "'And he said to him, "'Son, you are always with me, "'and all that I have is yours. "'It was right that we should make merry and be glad, "'for your brother was dead.' and is alive again, and was lost, and is found. The assignment for this morning was to discuss the parable of the prodigal son, and we're to spend some time considering the elder son in particular. As we do that, hopefully you'll be able to accomplish the other goals of this assignment by finding something you can apply to your own life, as well as answering for yourselves whether or not you, or Christians in general, can sometimes share in the elder brother's attitude. I think the way I want to tackle this is just first to briefly discuss the parallels that we can find here in this parable. Uh, who do the various characters represent uh, in our in our life or in 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 reality? Then I'd like to discuss the things we can learn from this parable about God and, and what God wants from us. pick the low-hanging fruit, I guess, if you will. Um, Finally, I want to discuss justice and its role both in this story and in salvation. So we started out by reading the entirety of Luke chapter 15. And the reason I did that is because I didn't want to lose the overarching purpose of this parable as we, we start digging in a little deeper. Ultimately, I believe the three of these parables are saying the same thing. And I think the three of these parables are ultimately just saying that, hey, it's, it's the sick who need a physician. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 through 13, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And uh, again, a repetition of Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. I never know just exactly how far we're intended to take these parables or how much we should make of the details that are that are recorded for us. But I do think there's a bit more that we can glean from this particular parable than just the value that God has placed on, on souls. On lost souls. Let's start by seeing uh, what parables we can draw. Who was a father in this parable? Maybe the easiest one first. Father represents God, right? Okay. Um, who do the sons represent? Saving and lost, okay. The, or the children of God or God's people, right? In general, I think um, God's people in general, but I think today we could just go right out and say that these are this is the church. These are these are this is God. They represent God's church. Okay? And, and what does the inheritance represent? This was a harder one for me. I first thought about it as a son or or maybe from from the perspective of the son and I thought, "Well, maybe God-given talent. Talent that was wasted when we don't use it for God." But then I thought about it as the father, and I, I think perhaps that was the perspective th- that, that might have been the key here. The conclusion from, from this perspective that, that I came to makes a lot more sense to me anyway. Uh, an inheritance, what is an inheritance then? An inheritance is something of value, it's, it's, it's the father's life work, it's his, it's his legacy. Sometimes it might be, we might not have any money to leave, so it would be his legacy. But in this case, it was the life and future he had provided for his sons. It, it, it seems to me like this guy was well enough off that if, they, if these boys had been responsible, they, they had it made, right? They, he had set them up for success. They had, their life was set before them and they were going to be able to live well. So based on those things, and I think there's that's, that'll be the basis of our, our discussion this morning. Uh, then I think there's some other general insights that can be gained from this parable as well that we'll pick up now because they're not necessarily related to the rest of what I want to talk about this morning. Uh, for one thing, we can learn how God and the heavenly beings feel or, or respond when one returns to God. Verses 7, 10, and 24. What What? What happened when when this lost item, when this lost son, when this lost sheep was found? There was there was celebration and there is joy in heaven. There is there is great celebration in heaven. That's how God and the heavenly beings respond when a lost soul is found. <clears throat> Number two, we can when we come to our senses and return to God in humility, He accepts us. He accepts us as the father in this parable does. The father in the parable saw his son coming from afar off. And it's always kind of sounded to me like, based on that, he was kind of keeping an eye out for his son. He was kind of hoping that maybe he wasn't dead. He was kind of watching to see if maybe someday, over the crest of that hill, his son might return. He has compassion on his son, and he doesn't wait for his son to come to the door to see how his son's going to come to him. He doesn't see if he's going to come to the back and ask for a job or if he's going to come in and, and demand his old bed. He runs out to meet the son and embraces him. Furthermore, we learn that turning from God is, is squandering a gift. And, and this was mentioned uh, yesterday some. Turning from God is squandering a gift, a gift that we can we came nowhere near earning. There's some, there's some pretty vivid imagery in Ezekiel 16 that, that reinforces this idea. God's chosen people had turned away from Him and, and turned to adul- idolatry, and, and this is what God had to say starting in verse 15. But you trusted in your own beauty, And you played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on every one passing by who would have it. You took some of your your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself, and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen, nor be. You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I had given to you, and made for yourself male images, and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them. And my food which I gave them, gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil, and honey, which I fed you and set it before them as sweet incense. And so it was, says the Lord God. God doesn't appreciate when we, we squander His gifts. And that was a pretty vivid imagery to me that I have given this to you. And you have wasted it. You've done more than wasted. You have what do I want to say? Hurt me with it. You have you have turned aside and given it to someone else. Finally, we learn what the proper response we learn the proper response of the elder brother. <clears throat> his father begs him to come in and celebrate his brother's reconciliation. Joy is the proper response. The elder brother responded by allowing himself to become become overcome with jealousy. Rather than being welcoming or reassuring, the elder brother was filled with spite and bitterness. Why should this brother, who has acted so irresponsibly, be celebrated? Why should he get the special treatment, the consideration, or the praise? What has he done to be deserving of such treatment? Instances like this can seem unfair to us, especially when we take this micro us-versus-them perspective. There is a bigger picture here. Let's turn to First Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read uh, five verses there, verses 21 through verse for 26. And, and in this particular instance, I'll be in the ESV. Verse 21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So we honor the less honorable parts and cover the less comely parts. Okay. Well, what if we put it this way? If we were to break, I'm I'm right-handed, and I'm very I'm very right-handed. I it, it's it's remarkable um, the difference. But suppose I break my right arm. What do I do? Well, I favor. I put it in. I make sure I get a cast for it, or I put it in a sling. And I certainly don't use it. But what I do then is I make my left arm do double duty, don't I? It has to do everything that the right arm was doing in addition to its own work. It doesn't deserve that kind of treatment. It didn't run off and get itself broke. The right arm's broke. And yet, the left arm now has to pick up the duties of the right as well. But what if it didn't? What if it decided that the right arm gets to rest while I get to rest too? I am not going to do any more than that right arm is going to do. The whole body would then suffer, wouldn't it? The whole body would suffer including the left arm. It would be kind of hard to feed myself without any hands or arms to move and then when i need the strength to do to do the work need that extra protein beef up this weak left arm and i'm not getting it and so my arm wastes away if we look if we step back and look at the big picture we can see pretty quickly that favoring that right arm is indeed the fairest thing to do not only for the, the body at, but for the left arm as well. The body needs that, that right arm to function at full capacity and so anything that can be done to speed or further the healing of that right arm should be done. Favoring that reckless right arm is the fairest thing that can be done. And again that's the fairest thing with regard to the body or any of the individual members. using that example, that same example of the broken arm that I just gave helps me to answer another question that might arise as well. What profit is there in being the loyal and responsible son in this parable if both sons get to receive of the same reward? Both sons are received as sons and are honored. Think about that left arm doing all the work for about I've never broken an arm or a limb, but it's about six weeks or so, isn't it? Think about how much stronger that would be and how the nerves would start talking to each other and how the connections to my brain would start being reinforced and how I might be able to, to do more then with that left arm. And pretty soon, by the end of this six weeks, this left arm is even more of a blessing to the body than it was to start with. Maybe I have two good arms now. Back to the uh, elder brother's response to his brother's return and, and his father's reaction. Jesus says that this older brother was angry. Emotions are some pretty complex things to me. One thing about our emotions is that they have a tendency not to be rooted in the situation at hand, right? Our emotional response to a stimulus is fed by more than the situation itself. Our response can be different based on our past experiences, our upbringing, our, our current mental state, or whether or not we had vegetables last day for lunch. Basically... We should never trust our emotional response to be situationally appropriate. It just—we should not do that. I always try and take a step back and look at the situation as logically as I'm capable, from about as many angles as I can, and I ask my question like—I ask myself questions like, "Am I being unfair?" I try to see things from another person's perspective. I start looking around to see. To see how everybody else is responding, am I am I responding in are they am I responding in kind to them, or is, is my response up here where everybody else's is here, and and so as I was reading this, I started asking my question myself these questions, and the one that I had trouble with was was justice done. I like to think of myself as one who loves justice. was justice done you know strictly speaking there was really there was nothing left for the younger brother back at home his father okay there was nothing left for him there he he had squandered everything that he had any right to the calf that his father slaughtered the robe the ring the shoes that he was given by rights those would have fallen to the elder brother upon the father's death. By my personal logic, the father's response to the lost son was unjust. Justice is defined as, as a just treatment or behavior. Well, some synonyms of just then include deserved, due, fair, merited, right, rightful, or warranted. Did the younger brother get what he deserved? No, he didn't. Did he get what was due him? No. To me, it seems that justice would have been better served had the younger brother been turned away. And grace or mercy would have been employed if the younger brother was made a servant. The father's lifetime of work that was, he, he was ready to provide for his son, and this, this irresponsible kid just wasted it all. What a spit in the face! Just like the Father in this parable, God does not turn us away. Take another little sidebar here, but it's important to know that in the big picture, there is no older brother. We sometimes feel and act like him, and and that's why this illustration was given, because the Pharisees and the scribes were acting like this older brother. But in reality, we're all the younger brother. What's What's Colossians 1, 21 and 22? And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, which I, Paul, became a minister. So we've all, at some point or another, squandered the inheritance." And yet God takes us back and He accepts us. So there have been times that we haven't gotten what we deserve. And the Bible tells us that that we have the expectation of heaven. Yet Isaiah 61 and 8 tells us that the Lord loves justice. How can justice be done and you and I make it into heaven? How is that justice? God's justice doesn't just stop and let grace take over either, though. I think there's a way to understand these concepts such that it all comes together. It all meshes. It all makes sense. Justice doesn't stop and grace just, oh, I love you so much. Come on in. Justice will be done. So now I need to understand what justice is because I clearly do not. At the end of time we will be judged by a righteous judge and and justice will be done. So so how was taking this younger brother back justice? How is it possible that a human can make it to heaven and justice be done? Number one, and I've kind of alluded to this already, I'm not sure that justice, as I think of it at least, has anything to do with eternity. And I'll get, I was going to get to this later, but maybe I should define how I think of justice. I think of justice as receiving the consequences of your actions. That's how I think of justice. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 20. We'll be reading 16 verses there, so it might be worth your time if you're turning... Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. And again he went out in the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You also go into the field and the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So when the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last of the first. And when those who came were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed then that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, He answered one of them and said, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. So again, in my mind, justice is receiving the consequences for your actions. Period. There's not a level of effort from us that makes us deserve heaven at all, though, is there? If we're relating to the feelings of the older brother, we need to stop and think. There is not one of us who has earned or deserved eternity with God. It doesn't matter if we've been in the Lord's service for a year or a month. It doesn't matter if we've taken a little hiatus or whether we've been faithful our entire lives. None of us deserve the reward that we've been promised. Whether we've produced tenfold or a hundredfold, we will all receive the same unmerited reward. So, if, we've rec- if we have received a reward we haven't earned, or if we're intending to receive a reward we haven't earned, then how can we begrudge others of receiving the same reward? This has got to be like the definition of Pride. Looking down on someone while standing on air. That's how I picture it. There's nothing solid, stable, or merited about such a position. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There is not one righteous, no, not one. So back to my point, salvation has little to do with what I tend to think of as justice. Salvation is not about getting what we deserve. I could never earn my place in heaven. And since I couldn't earn my place, there's zero room for me to begrudge anyone anything in Christ's church. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who makes you differ from another, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Okay, so my understanding of justice clearly does not align with what God calls justice. So let's look a little further into how justice can be done and we can make it into heaven. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, where we'll start. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does justified mean? What's that? Declared innocent. Declared innocent, made righteous. Okay. Let's think about let's think about a word document. I've got one here. Let's see if this. Yeah, this will work. This document is left justified. That means all the text, except for the beginning sentence of the paragraph, is lined up at the left margin. And all the text on the right side of the page ends wherever to make the word fit in between the margins. Imagine that margin is the bar that's set to get into heaven you have to be at least this good or do at least this much to make it in. Well, we know that that bar is set too high for humanity to achieve. Period. It's impossible for humanity to reach that bar alone. What has God done? God's grace, His goodwill towards us, has sent Christ to die for us and His blood has filled in that blank space between our capabilities and that bar. We have been justified. What's more, the price for our sins has been paid. So we can think about it that way too. Now justice insists that once a sin has been paid for, it cannot be brought up again. When our sins are under the blood of Christ's sacrifice, God holds them against us no more. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 25, To this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep gone astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. God is just, and He's not violating His own code of justice by pardoning those who deserve sin's consequences. Salvation is a just consequence because God has pronounced Jesus' death sufficient to satisfy His wrath. Christ took what we deserved upon Himself, and as such, the price for our sins was paid, and we are God's righteous servants. And if righteous, then worthy." The final point I was asked to discuss was about the older brother being lost as well. I gave this some thought, and I myself am myself i am not sure that he was. You can make up your own mind. If we consider this in the context of the parable, what do we see? Well, we see that the elder brother clearly had the wrong attitude and he did not handle himself well at all. We establish that his emotions and pride took over and governed his response and he did not celebrate the return of his brother as he should have. But what we don't see, we don't see his father cast him out, nor do we see his father remove his inheritance. We see a moment in time where the elder brother was in error, time where he sinned. Now, he could easily have become lost if he would have allowed his pride to continue. God resists the proud. He could have also become lost if he didn't eventually forgive, or if he rejected his brother and and made a him or me ultimatum. So while his attitude was wrong, and if we share it, we're sinning, I don't believe he nor we are lost in that moment. What we certainly do have are issues of selfishness and pride that we need to deal with. Something that i found is that different people come to a meeting like this and and you talk to ten different people and you ask them, well, what do you hope to get out of this meeting? And you probably wind up with about ten different things. Everybody seems to have different things they're wanting to glean, and and I think this parable has all of them that I could think of anyway. I'd suggest, after reading this parable to you, so let's see, some people want something they can go out and do. After reading this parable, I suggest that you go find the most underappreciated person you can think of and write them a note or make them a pie. Some people want something to think on, something to mull over in their mind throughout the day. And my question for you is, in what ways is God's sense of justice different than man's or different than yours? Some people want a way to improve themselves as Christians. And I think the challenge of this parable and the challenge that Christ was giving the scribes and Pharisees is to root out some pride out of your life. So my challenge for you is the next time someone's choices or lifestyle get on your nerves, and they do, is to take a step back and try and see the situation how God sees the situation. Above all, we need to remember that every soul has value and every soul is worth the trouble. Every victory is worth celebration and every weak or injured member should be favored. We need to think of ourselves a little bit less and we'll get what we've been we will get what we've been promised. we need to think of others a little bit more and how we can help them more. Some people want to feel encouraged, and well, we are all the prodigal son at some point or another. We may not completely fall away, but we do things that drive wedges between us and God. The encouraging aspect of this parable is that God loves us even more than this man loved his son, and he'll take us back even if we do squander his gifts. God is awaiting you. The calf is fat. The harps are ready. The angel's party robes are all laid out, ready to celebrate you, ready to rejoice at your return or acceptance of the inheritance. If you'll humble yourself and approach him as a servant, he'll make you a son. If we can help you with this or anything else, we'd ask you to come forward to stand the invitation. Song.